and it was given long back in 1803. And I said it's a descriptive classification. By descriptive, it means that he doesn't go into the origins, but he looks at the clouds of the world and he gives a classification. On the basis of shape, we had used three categories there. And for that, he used three Latin words. One was status, which is like a sheet. Second was which is like a bundle or a lock of curly hair. And third was cumulus, which is like a big mass, a heap or a pipe. And then I added the word nimbus. Nimbus is the word to be used in the name of a cloud. If it is certain that that cloud is going to give us rain. So a rain-bearing cloud was given the word nimbus and nimbus. Now besides this, we went for height as the other criteria. And in height, he went for two subcategories. One was height at which a cloud is formed. And in that, he gave us three categories as expected. Low, high, and middle cloud. Less than 2,000 meters, low. More than 6,000 meters elevation cloud is high. In between the two areas, middle or medium type cloud, right? Now, as I said, a classification would be better if the complex reality it handles is handled in a few categories only or few technical labels are used. So what this scholar did was he avoids the words, the new words for low and high cloud because he found that in nature low clouds are mainly status. And remember these are the statements which have been used in the exam many a time. And then he said, my observations tell me that high clouds are mainly serious. So he says, I don't need a new word for low and high. I'll manage their nomenclature with the help of something relating to status and serious. And you will see it in, or after 5-10 minutes. And for middle high cloud, he didn't get any such generalization possible. Means his observations didn't give him anything. And he preferred the word alto as a prefix in, name, in the name of a cloud. So whenever you have alto in the beginning of the name of a cloud, it would mean it's a middle height cloud. So for example, alto cumulus. It means it's a big heap which is found at middle elevation. Now these are the three categories there. And the final points given in the notes last time was that the spatial and the temporal variations would be seen in the heights. Means we are saying it is below 2,000 meters, it is above 6,000 meters, but these elevations for three categories may differ from place to place and at a place from time to time because conditions of atmosphere are not same everywhere. Now, this was this is what all we did last time. Now we come to the second category here, the clouds which have great vertical extent. <coughs> Remember, here we are saying height at which a cloud is formed. But there are clouds which start from lower elevations and go to great heights. So they are being clubbed separately. So here you have the title, clouds with a great vertical development. And the first point I think I have given, that these are those clouds which grow from low bases to heights of as much as 15 kilometers. 
Now I'm going to make two more observations, and both are important for the exam. See here. The clouds which go to great heights means they have great vertical extent. We see they have usually a limited horizontal spread. It means those which grow great in vertical extent, they do not grow horizontally much. Now what could be the reason for it? Can you recall something from the last lecture which may give the reason that clouds which are vertically more developed, their horizontal spread would be usually limited. Now see, you can understand it logically very easily. If you remember, we had three methods of uplifting of air for making clouds. If heat makes the air go up, it is convection. If mountain or some other barrier does a job, it is monogravity. And if fronts are the reason for the air to rise, it is frontal system. So please tell me which out of the three mechanisms would be the reason primarily for vertical development of cloud. Convection. It has to be convection, yes or no? There is no mountain in the world with the height of 14, 15 kilometers. Fronts are not that strong a system. Remember, fronts are in the middle latitude. The warm air which rises in a front would never be that hot as we have in the tropical areas. So one thing is clearly understood from last lecture, that clouds which develop great in vertical extent, they are primarily the result of the heating of the surface area as such. So if convection gives us this kind of cloud, so don't you think, if I need intense heating to the extent that air must rise to a level of 13, 14, 15 kilometers, so please tell me, out of the two options, there's a small area here and there's a large area here, which area sun can heat so intensely that air rises to 14, 15 kilometers? Small area. It is only small area. Because when, a, when the sun has to heat a large area, the rays have to go slanting and slanting rays can never give you that intensity it would be always diffused so these clouds have less horizontal spread because they are always the result of intense local convectional rising means a small area has to be heated intensely only then the air can rise to those great heights the kind of clouds we are talking about okay so write the second point such clouds usually have restricted horizontal spread. Such clouds usually have restricted horizontal spread. Within bracket right, as these are often the result of, the reason is, as these are often the result of intense local convectional rising as these are often the result of intense local convectional rising <coughs> now let's make one more point for such clouds see here we said low clouds are like mainly like sheep that is mainly scattered High clouds are mainly serious. Now, we make a very easy generalization, and most of you will understand immediately. The clouds which are great in vertical development, they are mainly cumulus in shape. So think of it. Clouds which are vertically more developed, 
by very nature of their they have to be what? Tubeless in shape. Tell me, are you able to appreciate this? Yes. The clouds which go vertically more, they would be more often tubeless in shape. Tell me, is that understood? See here, you have a cloud which are given as tubular nimbus. Recently, a cloud which is going from one or two kilometers to an elevation of the 14 15 kilometers of drop of one, what kind of shape it will have? Will it look like a sheet? Never. Will it look like curly hair? <coughs> it is going to be like a big mass. So clouds which are vertically developed, they are mainly you. And those of you who are not getting, many faces are not very clear. Those who don't, do not get, I make it easy. It's something like, when we grow big, we lose our shape. <laughs> I hope you understand now. And this is without any wrong intentions. I'm saying that we in general. So, when we grow so big, can you be like a sheet or come here? You will be like a globular mass. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, this is without any other reference. So, right. Such clouds are mainly cumulus in shape. Or simply write, such clouds are mainly cumulus. <laughs> such clouds are mainly cumulus. <coughs> Now, this brings us to almost the end of the classification, except one or two clarifications which I have to give you now. Now, please see And please, you do not write, just follow this book. I write one cloud here. I write a cloud with the name Cirrostratus. Now, please tell me, based on the lecture last time and today also I have given a repeat, please tell me, what would this mean to you? If a cloud is named as zero stratus, what exactly would you get out of it? One at a time so that I will get the answer. Is there a sheet type of cloud at a great height? So higher elevation, sheet like. Any other option? Yes? Lower height with curly hair. Okay. Lower height. With curly hair. Yes, the cloud Four options. Yes. 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 For higher elevation, we'll have the word zero. Alto was the word for middle. So I'll use the word zero for the higher elevation. And the second part of the title is always the shape. So remember the rule. First part is height, and the second part is the shape. So it's a sheet-like cloud, someone rightly said this. And it is at what elevation? Higher elevation. If there is a lower elevation cloud, I'll use the predict strato. Right? Now, let's have a more driving kind of normal means. Let's understand it properly now. If there is a stratus cloud at all the three elevations, remember we said low clouds are mainly status. But status may be found elsewhere also. So let us Think of a low, uh, sorry, a status cloud which, has, which is at higher elevation. 
Second, stratus cloud at middle elevation. And one, stratus cloud at lower elevation. So please think of the names now. For high status, we have already understood it's what? It is pseudo stratus. You can write this with me. Just to write it. This is the way you will be having the normal way. Write it on the margins of it. So stratus cloud, which is at higher elevation, will be named as zero stratus. First part of the name is for the height. Now please name the second one. Alto stratus. Alto stratus. Alto is the prefix for middle height cloud. And what is the third? <coughs> Now there are some students who are saying stratostatus. Some are saying only status. Choose one. Simply status only. Okay. There is no need to put strato when it is a status cloud because we know low clouds are mainly status. So when it is low status, it is to be named simply as status. No need for strato there. Now there is one interesting uh, point here that in one of the batches this year only. The same discussion, same answers came. Some students said status, status, some said only status. So finally I said it is simply status. And I found one of the students in the group who was writing simply status. <laughs> <laughs> so now I make it a point that I have been on the board that it is status. So with every class has a learning experience with the teacher also. So is this nomenclature right? Now, one more observation, and with that, I'll go to the next topic. Today, I'll give you for the first time a small assignment. I remember you purchased one book called GC New. Yes, sir. Today, whenever you get some time, it will take half an hour only. Go to that book and read two or three pages which are given on clouds classification. And you'll find most of that content you will understand with the lecture we had last time and today. But there will be one small additional thing which I am intentionally avoiding in the class so that you read that yourself because it has to be marked up. Because it's a descriptive classification. It is not a genetic one. It's not going to be a technical part of it. You just seeing the clouds and going for classification. So there would be three or four terms which I am avoiding here which you will in the uh, book, I'll give you hints on that and you will understand easily. See here. The author may write that when a particular cloud is there, I'm not naming it because I want you to check that. If there is a particular cloud, then the sky looks like mackerel sky. Now, it means the examiner can ask you, may the kind of question that four different types of clouds and four some uh, important <coughs> information here like which cloud will be attached to mackerel sky means which cloud gives me what is called mackerel sky now what is mackerel mackerel you know is a fish with stripes on its body so it means the author is asking or the examiner is asking which cloud gives me the appearance of the sky with stripes on it so you have to find that from the book today right Similarly, let's say this is C1. Then some other cloud where the author would write that this cloud gives me near the tails in the sky. Near tails in the sky. 
Now, mare is the other term for female horse. So, when does this guy appears to have large number of small tails of female horse? So, you have to tell that cloud, right? Then, take third. Some cloud gives us <coughs> what is called hello. Now, this many of you would have seen. See here. Sometimes you find that when you look up, there is a cloud. The sun or the moon is hidden behind it. And the sun or the moon shines at the periphery. Means this is the sun or moon hidden behind the cloud. But there is a shine of that moon at the periphery, sun or moon. Something like you would have seen when a painter makes a painting for a god or goddess, just to make it different, there's a luster or shine shown on the periphery. Yes, Something like Asaram used to put a band on What is this? This is just to make a distinction that I'm different from the masses. So that is what is called hello. So they may, you need to know which cloud gives me hello appearance. And one more, that which cloud gives me what is called dimly sun or dimly moon appearance. Dimly sun or dimly moon. What does that mean? Sometimes you see that there is a cloud, very thin cloud, and behind the thin cloud, there is sun or uh, moon, and it is not having a brightness, because in between you and the cloud, uh, sun, there is a thin cloud. Something like if I'm holding a white sheet here, and I switch on a bulb here, will you be able to see the brightness of the bulb? No. It would have a dim appearance, yes or no? So if you are sitting on the earth, there is a cloud in the atmosphere and there is a sun behind it or moon behind it. It will give you dim appearance. So they may ask you, which cloud gives, gives you dimly sun or dimly moon? So there is a Maggie following question possible now. Four options, four there, four clouds and four different shapes. So today, whenever you get time, please search for this. This is extra other than what I have not done. Okay? But almost I have done, I have just not disclosed which clouds. Okay? And if you don't cover it today, we'll give it in some test series later. <laughs> okay. So with this, I close the classification cloud. Now you write the title, presentation. started this topic last time, I gave one final point that science of cloud formation is well understood. But what happens within a cloud that is still not completely understood. Though the field of presentation is almost 100 years old as a research field, European scientists have really invested a lot of time here and they have given us a very good understanding also. But it is still not so good <coughs> that we can have a theory on presentation. You know that if you do not have the final word on the topic, we will not be able to develop a theory. So today you will see in the next 50 minutes time, I will explain the process of presentation 
through two hypotheses. <coughs> hypothesis means that we do have good understanding, but it is not still complete in itself to become a theory. Now, before I start those two hypotheses, let us have a broader look on the issue that why every cloud doesn't give us precipitation. Let us understand it in a broader sense, and then those hypotheses will make better sense. So let us see it in a simpler way. You have water on the earth's surface. This water gets evaporated, becomes vapor, and this vapor becomes part of the air. So we say air on Pusa Road outside holds vapor in it, the moisture in it. Now let us suppose hypothetically that the vapor which is there in the air of Pusa Road outside wishes to come back to the earth's surface. It again wants to, wants to become a part of the water system on the earth's surface. So can I say, if there is vapor in the air and it wishes to come back to the earth's surface, the only way is that first this vapor should become a part of the cloud. Directly it can't come, yes or no? It has to become a part of the cloud. So last time we learned how air makes clouds. So cloud formation we have understood. And you know, cloud is nothing but a reflection of, manifestation of, condensation and or sublimation. You have water droplets and or ice crystals. Now, the question we raise here is, that if vapor has already condensed itself, or vapor has already sublimed itself, then the question I raise here is that why this moisture doesn't come to me on the earth's surface? Why this cloud doesn't give me precipitation? You know, most of the clouds are not giving us precipitation. So question we raise is, why this moisture which has already got condensed or sublimed, why does it not visit to me on the earth's surface? The problem we understand is this, that condensation gives me, means when I say condensation, you can think of sublimation also. So the problem scientists have understood is this, that condensation gives us lots and lots of these water droplets or ice crystals. But the problem is that the size of there is very, very small. Means these droplets are large in number. But why they don't come to me on the earth surface? Because they are too small to fall towards the earth surface. They are so small that they will remain suspended up in the atmosphere. So the basic point is understood by science that why every cloud doesn't give me presentation. Because we understand condensation alone is not sufficient for <coughs> precipitation. Reason being, condensation gives me droplets in large quantity. But all those water droplets are too small to fall towards the earth surface. Is that okay for everyone? So it means science understands that the cloud which gives me precipitation certainly has a process whereby these particles happen to grow in size. It means these droplets will come to me on the earth's surface only when they have a process to grow. So, those clouds which give me precipitation, in them, these water droplets have to grow big enough to start a journey towards the earth's surface. So, what is the first challenge? 
that the size is too small to fall. Yes or no? So it means those clouds which give me precipitation, they do have some growth process. So let's suppose this particle happens to grow to a size where it can start its journey and it starts coming towards the other. But there is one more challenge. See, when we go up in height in atmosphere, in general, there's a decrease of temperature. But this drop, which has grown big enough to fall towards the earth's surface, for this drop, journey is opposite. Can I say, for this drop, the challenge on the way is that it has to pass through increasingly warmer layers of the atmosphere. Every next layer as it comes, comes down towards the earth's surface is warmer. So the problem can be <coughs> that as it has grown big in size to come towards the earth's surface, there may be a problem, a challenge on the way that the layer on the way, the atmosphere layer, may be so warm that when it reaches here, it happens to evaporate again and it becomes vapor. It means it's like prelims, maze, interview, prelims again. <laughs> Please imagine the fate of that student who has reached interview this year and the final score is so poor that he has to take prelims again. So it means what is the learning? That for nature to give us a drop on the earth's surface, it is a really very complex process. Most of us, exceptions will be there, waste hundreds and thousands of drops of water every day without realizing that for every drop to reach to the earth's surface, no one knows how many failed attempts has been there? Who knows one, two, three, how many failed attempts, right? So, it, it's a big challenge for a drop to finally reach on the air surface because it has to pass through increasingly warmer layers. So it means now we understand new point that this drop has to grow big enough not only to fall but also to overcome evaporation of the way. Is that okay? So it means it has to grow big enough to avoid evaporation on the way to the earth's surface. Now, so let us suppose this drop was so big that not only it started its journey, it also could overcome the increasingly warmer layers of the atmosphere. And having passed through that challenge, this drop was merrily coming down towards the earth's surface with the confidence that now I'm about to hit someone. But there came one more challenge. The second challenge was that when it was about to come to the earth's surface, there came, there came rising convectional currents. There came strong air rising upward and that air said, where are you going? Let's go back. <laughs> so it means you never know that how many times a given drop has gone up and down like this before it reaches the earth. <coughs> so it means now can I sum up by saying that a drop to come to the earth's surface has to grow big enough to overcome number one, evaporation. And second, strong convectional currents. And for these currents, we generally use the word turbulence in the atmosphere. Means activity in the atmosphere. Because if there is a lot of activity in the atmosphere, air may keep rising and may keep taking it back again up, right? So the challenge is evaporation and turbulence of the atmosphere. So write a sentence before we start hypothesis. Please write. Great multitudes of cloud particles 
great multitudes of cloud particles. When I use the word cloud particle, I am talking about water droplets and ice crystals. Great multitudes of cloud particles must join together, must join together in order to form, in order to form a drop large enough, in order to form a drop large enough to overcome, in order to form a drop large enough to overcome <coughs> both evaporation and turbulence, to overcome both evaporation and turbulence and thus be able to fall to the earth and thus be able to fall to the earth. So this gives you the basic point about uh, the cloud <laughs> precipitation. Now you like the next point. There are two hypotheses which attempt explaining there are two hypotheses which attempt explaining the process of precipitation. Now put a hyphen and write the nomenclature. The first hypothesis is called collision coalescence hypothesis. <coughs> So there are two hypotheses we'll discuss. The first one is collision coalescence hypothesis. Let me name the second one also, then we'll do one by one. The second one is called ice crystal formation hypothesis. Ice crystal formation hypothesis. Now see, the first one is a very simple idea. We'll just take five minutes to be covered. And this is a hypothesis which is associated with many scholars. Means many scholars have given the same idea. It is so simple that having done, you may say, even I could have said this. Right? So we do not generally find any name given for this hypothesis. But the second one is very technical hypothesis and very comprehensive. And this one is particularly given by two European scientists long back in 1930s. And many a times in books and in exams, this hypothesis goes by their names also. So please write the other nomenclature. It is also called as Bergeron Pendersen hypothesis. These are two European scientists' names. Bergeron Pendersen hypothesis. <coughs> and remember, both the hypotheses will be needed to answer some questions of preliminary examination related to clouds and presentation. And they will be also good for writing answers relating to main examination. For example, a few years back there was a question about urban flooding. You all know urban floods have become very 
popular or very frequent rather I say in India. So anything related to climate change, where clouds <coughs> discussion is involved, these hypotheses will always help you. Without them, we, without these, we can't understand even what is called as urban climatology. So the crux of these hypotheses in application is important one. The first one has some limitation and it is very simple, will take five minutes. The second one will take about 20 30 minutes time. So let's cover one by one both. So write once again collision collusion hypothesis. So let's cover the first one. Collision collusion hypothesis. Just write the title. I'll give you notes after five minutes. Just follow me on the board. See here. The big limitation of this hypothesis is that this hypothesis is largely based on the observations of tropical environment. And you know tropical environment or tropical atmosphere generally has warmer conditions. Now, the scientists who gave this idea, they simply ignore the presence of ice crystals in the cloud. See here, in cloud we expect two things, water droplets and or ice crystals. And even in tropical areas, if I go to great heights, I certainly have colder conditions where clouds may have, along with water droplets, ice crystals also. But this hypothesis simply ignores the presence of ice crystals. It only talks about the presence of water droplets. And as a result, this hypothesis will only attempt explaining liquid precipitation. Now, you already know in the background, there are five major forms of precipitation. See here, the moisture which is there in the cloud, when it comes to me on the surface, in the form of drops of water, I call them as rain. If the drops are like a spray of water, I call them as drizzle. If the moisture comes to me in a solid form, I call it as snow. If it is solid like a stone, I call it as hail. If I get a mixture of liquid and solid, I call it as sleet. So these are the five major forms of precipitation, which I'll be covering today if time permits. And there are numerous other forms also, but they are generally not important for us, except the three other, which I'll be doing as a part of some of the lecture. In some of the lecture, I'll deal with fog, mist, and haze. Even these are considered as forms of precipitation. But they are having a little different methodology, means their formation is different, so we'll discuss them separately. We are discussing those clouds and precipitation, which is by rising air. Remember, when air rises, then we discuss the cloud formation. So fog and mist you find happens on the earth's surface itself. Right? So their formation is different. So basically, we do eight forms of precipitation total, five today, and three would be fog, mist, and haze. Now, this presentation or this hypothesis only deals with water droplets and ignores the presence of ice crystals. So imagine there is a cloud, especially from the tropical area, where you only have large number of small water droplets. And you already know that they do not come to us only for the reason they are too small to fall towards the earth's surface. So this hypothesis 
simply says that these large number of particles which are present there in the cloud, they certainly would have <coughs> collisions with each other. And you know, some collisions in life are fruitful. Some collisions, excuse me, just call the office. Here. Some collisions are fruitful and they lead to coalescence. It means merging together. And which collisions are useful? The collisions which are between oppositely charged particles. <laughs> positively charged particles and negatively charged particles. Right? So, you all know from your practical temperature. So you know, up in the clouds you have seen charges. You all are aware that clouds may have thunder and lightning. It means charges are there. We know that. Now if someone has a question, how do charges develop in the clouds? The general belief in physics of clouds is that up in the atmosphere, we have high velocity air circulations and that high velocity air would have a friction with the moisture particles and that becomes the reason for the generation of the charges positive and negative. So when the opposite charged particles will collide, those collisions will lead to collisions. So this hypothesis is almost over that it says there are only water droplets, they grow in size by having collisions. Which collisions are fruitful? Which are between oppositely charged particles. Is that okay? Because they will lead to collisions. Now having said this, I sum up the rest of the things in one sentence. Can I say, larger the particles grow, the faster they grow and faster they fall. Means once you understand, collisions between oppositely charged particles will lead to collisions. Rest of the story is just one sentence. Larger the particles grow, faster they grow, and faster they fall. Why? Because here, when some particles have become larger in size, the chances of collisions will increase, and the growth process will get enhanced as such. Okay. So this is the hypothesis called collision collision. And limitation is what? That it only talks about rain or drizzle. It only talks about liquid precipitation. It doesn't talk about snow, hail, etc. So please write a few lines of this. Please write, in many cases, put a comma, particularly in the tropics, in many cases, put a comma there, particularly in the tropics, again put a comma, clouds have temperatures Clouds have temperatures too high, TWO, too high for the formation of ice crystals. Too high for the formation of ice crystals. First of all, right? In such clouds, in such clouds, put a comma, rain is formed by, rain is formed by rain is formed by the collision and merging of 
collision and merging of water droplets by the collision and merging of water droplets put upper right next sentence condensation alone cannot give rain condensation alone cannot give rain because it produces lots of because it produces lots of small droplets but no large drops but no large drops put up right thus coalescence is necessary next in thus coalescence is necessary put up right apparently coalescence is assured apparently coalescence is assured only if only if atmospheric electricity is favorable only if atmospheric electricity is favorable that is if a positively charged droplet that is if a positively charged droplet collides with a negatively charged one if a positively charged droplet collides with a negatively charged one now rest of the things you put in one sentence please right the larger the particles grow the larger they grow the larger they grow put a comma the faster they grow and faster they fall the larger they grow faster they grow and faster they fall that's all now what is the limitation that it only explains <coughs> liquid precipitation so write a comment at the end please write the major limitation of this hypothesis is the major limitation of this hypothesis is that it only explains liquid precipitation it explains only liquid precipitation it explains only liquid precipitation now see we'll be moving towards the second hypothesis but for second hypothesis we need some concept of cool side so let's first cover that and then i'll start second hypothesis now you write a concept called vapor pressure <coughs> vapor pressure and give me 5 minutes on the board please don't write see here as the term indicates clearly pressure exerted by the vapor of any substance would be called as vapor pressure now we are dealing with atmosphere so <coughs> air is a mixture of gases and one of the constituents of that air that mixture is vapor 
So let us suppose on Fusa Road at this moment outside, air is exerting pressure P over us. So I assume air outside on Fusa Road is exerting pressure with capital P over us. Can I say a small part of this total pressure, which I denote as delta P, certainly can be attributed to vapor? Air is a mixture exerting how much pressure? P. Every constituent of the air would have a role in that pressure. So that part of the pressure, which is only the contribution of vapor, I show as delta P. And this is what I call as vapor pressure. So the part of the total pressure in air, which is caused by the vapor in it, is called its vapor pressure. If I assume that air outside at this moment is saturated with the vapor, saturation you know, that let us, I am assuming that air outside, at whatever temperature it is, it is holding the moisture to its capacity. If air is saturated, then can I call its vapor pressure as saturation vapor pressure? Yes, yes. So, under saturated conditions, the vapor pressure get, gets a new name and it is called as SVP, saturation vapor pressure. Now, I will be going for one important fact. I will compare two surfaces. I take first the surface of water. And I compare it with surface of ice. Now please tell me on which surface, the surface of water or over surface of ice, SVP would be higher. Which surface would have water surface or ice surface? Higher saturation vapor pressure. Now by this I mean, those who are not getting my point, what does it mean? Which one has higher SVP? I am basically asking a simpler question. Which air, the air over water or the air over ice would need more, more molecules of vapor to get saturated? Which air would need out of the two more vapor molecules to get saturated? Answer is water. It means what I am saying is this air needs more vapor molecules to get saturated as compared to air over ice. This is the fact. It means fact is SVP over water is more than SVP over now, those who gave me this correct answer, what is the reason for this? Very good. Now, mostly the students will give this temperature difference. Means most of you will understand in an easier way that air over water would be warmer and can hold more moisture. So, it would need more for saturation. If you understand it that way, it's fine. But there is a final point you need to remember that the basic difference also comes from the nature of the surface. Remember, water as a surface can lose molecules much easily as compared to ice. And you know, if there is a surface, it loses its molecules and those molecules are going into the air over it and then there comes a time when the air is not able to hold any more vapor molecules and if this surface gives more vapor molecules, then the air will start sending those molecules back. So you have done in school 
that between the surface and the air over it, there gets established an equilibrium that this surface would evaporate till the time there is air getting saturated over it. And once that air gets saturated, then the number of molecules will balance each other, right? Now, water would easily evaporate much easily as compared to ice has to sublimate to give you vapor here. So finally, the crust is that SVP over water is more than SVP over ice. And Bergeron and Peterson, those two European scientists, will use this fact to develop their hypothesis. So preside in one one, vapor pressure. Preside, the pressure exerted by the vapor of a substance is called its vapor pressure. The pressure exerted by the vapor of a substance is called its vapor pressure. For example, the pressure exerted by water vapor in the atmosphere. For example, the pressure exerted by the water vapor in the atmosphere. Then right further, if the air is saturated, if the air is saturated it is called saturation vapor pressure. If air is saturated, it is called SVP, saturation vapor pressure. The right next point. SVP is greater above a water surface. SVP is greater above a water surface than over an ice surface. Than over an ice surface. <coughs> that is, it takes more water vapor molecules. That is, it takes more water vapor molecules to saturate air. It takes more water vapor molecules to saturate air above water than it does above ice. Then it does above ice. Now, European scientists will use this idea. So now we write second hypothesis title. Ice crystal formation hypothesis. Now, 
hypothesis. This is a technical hypothesis. But since we need it for application, so I try to put it in the most lucid form, but at no point I'll lose any technicality here. So let's see it in a very simple way. European scientists, Bajiron and Pindasin, suddenly would be focusing on their own environment. So they start by saying that in our cloud, when I, when I say our cloud, it means cloud is a temperate environment. So they say in our clouds, there are three things coexisting. There are three constituents together in our clouds. What are those three things? They say in our clouds, we'll have large number of ice crystals. Now tell me, would you agree with that? Certainly, you're in a temperate environment, and that too up in the atmosphere, conditions will be quite cold. And you know, if you know, you pointing less than zero degrees would have higher chances of giving us the ice crystal formation. Second, they say in our clouds, we have also large quantities of water droplets. Now, some of you may have a problem here that, sir, when the temperature is already so cold that we have ice crystals, then how do we have water droplets? Then do remember that as we go up in the atmosphere, the pressure is decreasing and we have always a possibility of having water in the liquid state even at temperatures much below zero degrees centigrade. So if we go up, even if the temperature is very low, we do have microscopic sized water droplets. And since they are existing as liquid, even at very low temperatures, so this water droplet would be called as super cooled droplet. So it means higher I go in atmosphere, there's a possibility of water in liquid state even at sub-freezing temperatures, very low temperatures, and such water droplets are microscopic in size, and they are referred to as super-cooled droplets. Now, third thing, you know, cloud means vapor is converting into either water droplets or ice crystals. So, since vapor is condensing or subliming, so at any given point of time, a cloud may also have vapor in it, which is yet to condense or yet to sublime. So the third thing I write here is vapor gets to be condensed. And when I use the word condensed, I'm including sublimation. So they start by saying, in our clouds, we have three things. Now just to make my presentation clear, so what I do is I'll add three things in this cloud. I'll represent vapor by dot. I represent water droplet by a small circle and ice crystal is a star. So I make a European cloud. This is the vapor in it. And then you have water Also. 
that sir earlier you were saying water droplets and ice crystals are in fights now how do they come in charity mode that they have started helping the ice crystals then i'll say when water droplets fight that someone we were looking for has gone to someone else they will say okay let let us help that someone to get that so water droplets will start evaporating if to the help of ice crystals means they will help them grow as such and you will certainly have a question sir why is it so now the possible reasons given by scientists would be something like this one when vapor goes for sublimation there will be latent heat being released yes yes so some scientists say that latent heat may be sufficient for evaporating the water droplets but some other scientists have this idea and that is the idea that as vapor goes for sublimation it will create a disequilibrium in the system and to bring the system back to equilibrium there will be more evaporation by water surface let me show you exactly what here if this is the surface of ice crystals and this is the surface of water what is happening in this process vapor molecules start yes is see here every surface has a certain vapor molecules held in the air over it now you are being told that these vapor molecules are getting sublimed so don't you think if water has these vapors over it water droplet and these are ice this is ice crystal having these vapor molecules now when these vapor molecules are getting sublimed there so don't think there would be a disequilibrium here yes yes and these vapor molecules will come here because pressure is decreasing now as more and more vapor molecules go for sublimation that will create a disequilibrium over water surface and you know every surface has to bring the system back to equilibrium by what by evaporating so see here i repeat the point <coughs> this is ice crystal here the vapors are coming for sublimation right now from where do vapor come first the vapor which was not yet condensed then there are certain vapor over the water droplet so as more and more vapor molecules will come from water to the ice crystal for sublimation that will create disequilibrium over water surface and to bring that equilibrium back the surface of water will start evaporating so final crux is <coughs> that ice crystals are growing at the cost of water droplets and do remember the whole process is not completely understood that is why it still remains hypothesis but they believe that it is something like this happening and that is conclusion is important to us that what grows at whose cost it is ice crystal which grows at the cost of water droplets now see here as these ice crystals will grow we can call them as snowflakes and when these snowflakes start coming down towards the earth surface if they do not melt on the way i'll call them as it would be which form of precipitation snow if it melts on the way i'll call it as rain or drizzle if it grows to become a stone of ice we'll call it as hail and i'll explain this point when i come to the forms of precipitation 
act if there is a mixture of snow the solid and the liquid precipitation i'll call it as sleet so what is the beauty of this hypothesis that it is able to explain both liquid as well as solid and this is more comprehensive for the people but do appreciate we are not going to say that this is more comprehensive so we reject the first one no <laughs> remember in this cloud europeans are neglecting one thing that even this cloud may have collisions yes or no so collision part is missed by the europeans and whereas the scholars who have given the first hypothesis they have missed something what europeans are doing so it means at present science believes a mixture of the two hypotheses collision coalescence and ice crystal formation the mixture of the two is a better option for understanding the process of precipitation both are used together to understand what is happening in the cloud to give us so please write a few lines on ice crystal formation hypothesis <coughs> Besides, ice crystals and supercooled water droplets, ice crystals and supercooled water droplets often coexist in the cloud. Ice crystals and supercooled water droplets often coexist in the cloud. First of all, right? These two are in direct competition. These two are in direct competition for the available water vapor. For the available water vapor that is not yet condensed. That is not yet condensed. First of all, right? There is lower vapor pressure. Next one. there is lower vapor pressure around the ice crystals there is lower vapor pressure around the ice crystals put a comma so they attract so they attract most of the vapor so they attract most of the vapor <coughs> put a comma and the water droplets and the water droplets again we come in turn and the water droplets come in turn again we come tend to evaporate tend to evaporate to replenish to replenish the diminishing supply of vapor to replenish the diminishing supply of vapor folks so, for the right next sentence so the ice crystals grow so the ice crystals grow at the expense of the water droplets so the ice crystals grow at the expense of the water droplets <coughs> until they are large enough to fall until they are large enough to fall 
Who's the upper right? Next sentence. As the crystals pass through, next next sentence. As the crystals pass through the lower, what do you call it? Warmer portions of the cloud. As the crystals pass through the lower, warmer portions of the cloud, what do you call it? They pick up more moisture. They pick up more moisture and become still larger. And become still larger. <coughs> they may then precipitate, they may then precipitate from the cloud, they may then precipitate from the cloud as a snowflake as a snowflakes or they may be melted or they may be melted and fall as raindrops <coughs> or they may be melted and fall as raindrops now write one separate final point is that presently we understand presently we understand that a mix of these two hypotheses, a mix of these two hypotheses provides a comprehensive understanding. A mix of these two hypotheses provides a comprehensive understanding of the process of presentation. I'll, I'll be just back within a minute.
that we do not have the bursting of a cloud ever in here. Then the question in your mind would be that if there is no bursting in the cloud, then why do we use this term? Now, answer is that it's a sensible term. It's not technically correct. And tell me what is the rule inside? That scientists understand a phenomenon, they coin a term for us, and that gets popular in our society. But in this case, it has been opposed. This term has gone from the mouth of the people to the books of science. These people have used it, and scientists have accepted it, understanding though it's correct, it is incorrect, but still it is accepted because of popularity. It's something like our leaders speak some wrong things every day, and we start believing them, or we accept those things and those points in the same way. So it's what it's not technically connected is fancy, but the question still remains that what is cloudburst in reality? It is very simple. See here, if you have too much of rain in too short a time, <coughs> making the people of that area <coughs> comment that it appears as if there is a bursting of cloud. So when you have too much of rain in too short a time, making the people of that area comment, it appears as if cloud has busted. That situation of too much rain in too short a time, is it technically called? No. It means it's a subjective feel rather than any physical bursting of the cloud. Is it okay? Now, let us recall that which are the important areas which have been in use for cloud burst in India. So please tell me the areas you have come across in the last 10, 15 years for cloud burst. Yes, UK, India. What else? Northeastern region. Are you from India? I am asking you something more. You have read a book in newspaper and all that. Then someone says Kerala, fine. Chennai also a few years back. And Mumbai also. These are the same these are the places. Balance places. These are the places which have been used for cloud personality in the last ten years. Now recall something from my previous lecture. That what are types of presentation? By type of presentation we mean the mechanism with which the air gets uplifted. And there are three mechanisms: convection, orographic, and transfer. So before I go further on cloudburst, please suggest me one small point. Answer this small question here: that with which type of presentation? The cloud burst would be most often associated with. Yes, sir. Very good. I repeat, my question was: with which type of presentation cloud burst would be most often associated? And a few students answered it immediately as orography. <coughs> Don't you think if that was the answer, I would not have asked this question? <laughs> See, I, I want you to take this as a particular instance where I can tell you what will happen in the preliminary examination of UPSC. See, you react, you happen to react immediately as orographic. Why? Because I conditioned your mind a few minutes back. 
I have no purpose, no intention to teach Indian geography. That's with other teachers. But I still wrote some places. And I wrote it with this intention only that I'll take you to a wrong answer. And you happen to fall in my trap. I wrote places which are mountainous in nature. Then I also wrote a few other places to give a caution to a good student that you must catch it. But you are so obsessed with the mountain that you are might stop thinking and you went for orographic answer. This is what UPSC examiners will do. They will write the question such a way that the moment you read that question, it will create a field. And that field will take you to the wrong answer. And the whole process will be so instantaneous, spontaneous, then you'll feel delighted. Yes, I do. <laughs> and three or four such delights would make you enjoy Rajendranagar for a few more years. <laughs> so do remember, we Indians have this negative trait. Many of our answers in life in every interaction are based on. So please make a rule that every Sunday when you take a test, you will practice shifting from field-based answers to logic and or fact. So remember, I'll like, make a pledge that I'll answer a UPSC primary exam question only when I have either both of them, logic and fact, or at least one of them. If none of them is there, the third thing we will use is field. Now, so please try to change over or shift over from field-based answers to logic and logic. And I tell you, it will take a lot of time. Because right from our school days, primary school days, this has been our business. And we do it in social life also. <laughs> <laughs> so let's answer this question logically and we'll try to answer the chain immediately. Let's see. I, I do not know the answer. But let's develop the right answer. What is Cloudburst? A few minutes back, you were told, too much of rain in Kushode, you should have simply asked yourself that which cloud can give me too much of rain in Kushode time. So please tell me, based on your previous and today's lecture, which type of cloud can give you too much rain in Kushode time? The clouds which are more vertically developed, yes or no? For example, cumulus. So clouds which are more vertically developed can give us too much rain in too short a time. And please tell me, a cloud which is vertically extended to great heights would be the result of which mechanism? It is the result of? So remember, cloud bursts are most often associated not with the orographic presentation, if they are related to convection. It means intense local convection, rise of air is what is the reason for? It is not choreographed. But still there is a question in your mind. Now mind this. You may agree with my answer, but you still may have a question that sir, if convection is the reason, then why most of the time we have mountainous regions in use for cloudburst? Then I'll justify that point by giving two more observations for the same topic. But before that, we convince <coughs> Cloudburst is more often the result of why mountains remain in our mind more or why mountains appear in newspaper more often. Let's understand two supporting reasons for it. 
the first statement I write here, I try to understand how it is correct. I say mountain <coughs> A in the process of convection. It means reason is convection, but the presence of mountains will aid or intensify convection. Now tell me, are you able to appreciate how mountains will intensify, aid the process of convection? Now basis tell me not understood. I change the statement. I give you a new area of science today. Means I'm just hinting at something which is different from crowdburst, but would be coming in my last lecture. <coughs> I say if you don't understand mountains aid in the process of convection, try to understand this. In an urban area like Delhi, buildings aid in the process of convection. <coughs> there is no improvement on this. <laughs> now see here. Those of you who have not understood any one of them, let's start from building's point. I said buildings aid in the process of convection. It, it can be easily understood the way I say now. Imagine the plot of this building when building was not constructed. Let's say the plot on which this building is there was a rectangular plot. Can I say, when building was not there, the sun used to heat every day only this plot area, yes, right? but by constructing this high-rise high building, let's say this is five-story building, have we not provided the sun more area to heat us? Means earlier it was only rectangular area, now we have given side walls and the rooftop. So it means you all agree. Building aid in the process of convection because we have given multiplied yes, area. Now understand a final point. Not only we have given this more area to hit us in urban areas, by providing buildings in such areas, we have also given this more time to hit us every day. See here, when it was a plot, the sun used to hit this plot only for the time early in the morning when sun used to rise. So when the sun was high in the sky, it was hitting this plot. As in the later part of the day, the sun was going down, it was not being heated much. But if there is a side wall here, which goes to five stories, don't think? From the time the sunrise takes place, at all the different times of the day, sun is changing its position, but it has some of the other surface area of the building, which is being heated. So how many of you understand? Buildings aid in the process of convection by providing much more area as well as much more <coughs> Now, why did I bring this issue today? Because towards the end of my classes, to the extent time will permit, I will introduce a field of knowledge called urban climatology. See the interesting point. There's a field of science called urban climatology. What does that tell you that in urban areas, mankind has modified the environment so much that general science of climatology is no more applicable. It means scientists have to develop a new science to deal with atmospheric situations in the urban area. And three or four years back or five years back, there has been a question in main examination on urban heat islands. 
you'd have heard of this phrase. There can be any good question after that on urban climate first. So you need to prepare for your main examination that what are the salient characteristics of urban environment in relation to the field of climate work. So I'll provide you some notes and some ideas on that. So it is in relation to building. Now, I repeat, I, I remove this and now I write mountains. Please tell me, do mountains do the same or not? If this area was without mountains, so again only the plot area is being hated. But if there are a number of hills here, can I say, each slope of a high standing hill is like the side wall of a building. So it provides more area as well as more time for the sun to heat. So cloud burst is the result of convection. But why mountains are more in use? The reason is that convection gets intensified with the presence of mountains. So many times mountains become the areas where you have cloud burst or enlargement. <laughs> Now this is one point to explain this kind. Now let's come to one more uh, uh, like, uh, addition here. And whatever I'll say now, we see it in the light of the tragedy we had a few years back <coughs> in Uttarakhand. So whatever I speak in the next five minutes, for that Uttarakhand tragedy at the back of the mind. Means I'm trying to justify why mountains would leave stronger impressions of mind for cloud burst. So let us say, this is that high elevation area in Uttarakhand where that disaster started. So what happened on a particular day? Somewhere up in the mountains, there was a heavy rain because of cloud called yes, it means tragedy in Uttarakhand started simply with heavy rain of a cumulonimbus cloud. And the state government was given notice by the meteorological department that there is going to be heavy rain. But the state government didn't bother because they thought somewhere higher in elevation, even if there is a heavy rain, it will be taken care of in one or two days. But what happened after that, state government had not thought of. That you had a heavy rain of cumulonimbus cloud. This got supplemented with some other things also. See here. Up in the mountains of Himalayas, like Uttarakhand, we have large number of glacial lakes. And what are these basically lakes? These are huge collections of water, and the water is trapped simply behind the glacial sediments. You know, when glaciers move, they bring sediments from different areas. And those sediments happen to trap great volumes of water behind them. And they become what we call as glacial lakes. So imagine up in the higher elevations of Himalayas, we have large number of big lakes which are just having water in great quantities spread behind the loose sediments. So what happened that day was heavy rain of cumulonimbus cloud disturbed those sediments. And as a result, large number of lakes happen to release their waters. <coughs> and when a big lake releases its water, we call them as glacial lake outbursts. It means the Uttarakhand state government doesn't know, even today, that how many glacial lakes happened to burst there that day because of the heavy rains disturbing the sediments of it. And do remember, what could be the other reason for such kind of glacial lakes outbursts? 
in becoming like topics I'll be teaching earthquakes. Can I say Himalayas are the most earthquake prone area of India? And don't think any shaking of the ground there could lead to glacier lake outburst. So heavy rains of cumulus clouds led to large number of glacier lake outbursts. So imagine the amount of water which not was there. Plus, something else also happened. Very soon I'll be teaching you a term called mass movement. By mass movement we mean movement of loose material which is primarily because of gravity. You all know along the slopes of the mountains we have tons and tons and tons of loose materials. They are in balance if they are not disturbed. They are in equilibrium. But if there is a trigger, then this great quantity of material may start moving primarily because of what? Gravity. But they need a trigger. The trigger may come from earthquake or in this case the trigger came from great amount of water and there started great mass movement. Means tons and tons of material started moving at water. So this whole got coupled with great mass movement. And now great water, then this material plus four things, couple it with steep slopes of the mountains. This is called Uttarakhand tragedy. Now tell me, will this kind of tragedy leave stronger impressions or not? Will you remember crowd burst of this? Uttarakhand more or would you remember the crowd burst of a city? It would be more of Sakhi because it became a great force. So this is the reason that mountains remain in our mind that more whenever the term cloud burst is used. But do remember, still the answer is what? So what you do is on the margin write two sentences. Write on the margin first. Design Mountains or buildings aid in the process of convection. Mountains or big buildings aid in the process of convection. <coughs> Second, you write just a phrase on which I'll be giving notes later. Is it glacial lake outburst? Please remember that you have to cover glacial lake outburst in Himalayas. Glacial lakes outburst. And please take a pause there. Tell me, have you done disaster management with uh, Mrs. Vishani? When you are criticizing or when you are going for critical examination of disaster management policies in India, one of the points can be in relation to this discussion that our state, our Indian state, our government should always know. How many lakes we have up in Himalayas? See, if you want to have a better management of disasters in Himalayas, the first requirement in this context is that we should know how many lakes we have up in the mountains, and second, how much volume of water they might have, and plus, what are their locations. <coughs> it means one very important point for India is that we must map our yes, with glacial lakes if you want to have better disaster management. <coughs> but unfortunately, I have to say that though we have great space technology with us today, but India still doesn't know about its glacial lakes. Because even today after Uttarakhand tragedy, we have not learned that we must map our lakes if we want to have a better disaster management in Himalayas. 
whereas in the situation of Nepal, which is so poor a country and perhaps has no technology in space, still knows more about its lakes than what India knows. So this is a lopsided approach in India that on one hand you say that we have reached Mars and on the other hand you are not using that technology to map the lake surface. And we do know Himalayas are also prone to earthquake. So all these lakes can burst any time because of any shaking of the ground also. So this could be one of the points of many points that you can use for critical examination. So right, third point in the margin, urban climate model. Just write the words so that you know I have to give you something of this later, right? Now you write in the main notes what is cloudburst. Please write. Cloudburst is a fanciful term. Cloudburst is a fanciful term used for used for a sudden used for a sudden, put a comma, very concentrated, very concentrated downpour of water, very concentrated downpour of water, first of all, right, generally, now take a pause here, please tell me, in cloudburst, Generally, the area affected would be small or large. It would be small because remember, it is the result of intense convection. And you know, intense convection can happen only in small areas. But do remember, why Uttarakhand tragedy became so big? Because because of the mountains, the area of its effect was multiplied. This tragedy started at one small point, but it happened to reach to the other area. And perhaps that is another added reason that we remember such tragedies more. So besides, generally the area affected is quite small. Could you hibernate? This is for the reason, this is for the reason that the cloud burst is caused by, this is for the reason that the cloud burst is caused by intense local intense local convectional rising <coughs> underline these four words this is for the reason that the cloud burst is caused by intense local convectional rising no right one more term Cloud ceiling. Now, can anyone suggest me what? We have done hypothesis is given by Europeans and that second hypothesis 
was given by Bajiron and Peterson somewhere in 1930. And by 1950s, <coughs> European scientists thought that whatever learning we have got from Bajiron and Peterson, why should we not use that learning to solve the problem of water resources in the world? See here, we have so many clouds up in the atmosphere, but many of them do not give us presentation. So some European scientists started thinking in 1950s that let us cash on the understanding given by Bajuron and Pindasin and let us go and interfere with the existing clouds of the nature so that they give us presentation. So by cloud seeding we mean all that interference, what scientists do with the existing clouds so that they give us precipitation. Now one important point where students make a mistake when this message question is asked in the exam, means in prelims we can ask a question, what of the following will include <coughs> cloud seeding? And one of the points may be the formation of new cloud. So do remember, in cloud seeding we never ever attempt making a new cloud. Because humanity has no reason to waste time and money in making clouds because we already have so many clouds up in the atmosphere. So remember, the cloud sitting as a project is only for existing clouds in the nature. There are so many of them. So it means it is nothing but seeding a given cloud. Now, I said this project is based on the hypothesis of European scientists. So let's see. What did we learn from that hypothesis and how we use it for cloud seeding? And what is our objective? That we want to use presentation out of it. Now see, the hypothesis of Europeans is based on formation of ice crystals. And you know ice crystals will need colder conditions. Means when do, when do you expect ice crystals to form? When the conditions are cold. So, in these projects of cloud shedding, which were carried in the second half of the 20th century by Europeans, in most of the projects, they used dry ice, what is solid carbon dioxide. Means one of the interference was that scientists injected pallets of what is called dry ice. Many of you may know from chemistry in school that when you inject dry ice in an environment, the temperature may come down to as much as minus 78 degrees centigrade. So, first was the injection of dry ice. With what objective? The cloud should become much colder so that it can give us more ice crystals. Plus, the scientists went for the injection of moisture. You know, moisture, if it is more in quantity, it can enhance the process of cloud formation. And if the cloud formation is enhanced, chances are that cloud may give us more precipitation. So number one, injection of dry ice. Second, injection of moisture. Third, you know for vapor to condense or sublime itself, you need some particle. So scientists injected some chemicals in the cloud which provided the particles to act as condensation or sublimation nucleus. And one chemical which was very popularly used in Europe 
in the second half of the 20th century was AGI, silver iodide smoke. Mm. So, such kind of injection, where you go for dry eyes plus the moisture plus <coughs> chemicals like silver iodide smoke, they all give us what is called as cloudsity. And these projects were very popular in Europe in the second <coughs> half of the 20th century. But if we look at the results, largely find the results have not been good. Only in a few projects, we could induce more precipitation. Only in few of them. In most of the projects, nothing happened. All our money and time got wasted. And in fact, in a few projects, nature penalized us. Nature gave us less than what it was giving us otherwise. It means nature thought that you are interfering with me, so I'll give you less than what you otherwise get. So negative results also came. And as a result, the whole process is understood as unpredictable or it's not reliable. So European scientists over a period of time have stopped going for cloud setting. If some projects are being done in Europe today, they are not with the purpose to solve the problem of water resource. They are more with the objective for more of experimentation. Means to more uh, understand the process of presentation that we go. Otherwise, they have understood that presentation still not completely understood. <coughs> that we can use cloud seeding as a tool for solving the problem of water resource. So Europeans are not doing it much. <coughs> but you know, science and technology gets transferred from the Gulf countries to developing countries like India and China. So now it is our turn to invest some time and money in these projects. So over the last 10 to 15 years, <coughs> India has done it and China has done it on last scale. And in India, our state government in Karnataka did it and then later Maharashtra. <coughs> but do remember in the case of Karnataka where it has been done for a few years, it is more of politics and less of science. <laughs> Means you know, Karnataka is in rivalry with the Tamil Nadu for the sharing of Kaveri River. Mm. <coughs> so perhaps the politicians of the state government in Karnataka wanted to show to the nation that we are so short of water, we have to go for It is our trying to suggest don't ask for sharing of water because we are already so short. <coughs> so less of science and more of politics was, was perhaps there. And this one interesting point to be shared here. When cloud seeding projects were being done in Karnataka, <coughs> and the, in those days, when the farmers used to assemble in their fields in the morning for their routine works, they used to joke amongst each other that nothing to worry now, we are going to get government rain. <laughs> they could not make sense out of only cloud seeding, so they developed a substitute term. And what was that? Terminology government rain traveled from Karnataka to your UPSC interview hall. <laughs> so in those particular years, this question became very popular that the especially geography option students were asked very often questions. What is government? If anyone could answer that, then the next question was what is government? So that is the popular context in which we have seen it. And if you remember last like, uh, last month perhaps. You had read in newspapers that some in Delhi or India India are thinking of using cloud seeding to reduce pollution. So I hope you understand 
when the whole process is unpredictable. Perhaps we do not have that much of money and time to waste here. Yes? So, if you really want to tackle population problem, you have to go to the root cause rather than such kind of gimmicks. Yes, we Indians can go for crowdfunding, but like Europeans, it should be for experimentation, not for solving the water resource problem or for solving <coughs> you know, pollution also has become you know, political here. Means, according to the politician in Delhi, we know the source of pollution. Yes, sir. For KG one, it is one. For Modi, there is none. So, if it is such a scenario that perhaps it is more a gimmick and waste of time and money, we should focus on the real causes. So, right, one, two, right, now, refers to. It refers to the introduction into clouds. Cloud seeding refers to the introduction into clouds of condensation. When you write condensation, you write oblique sublimation nuclei into clouds of condensation, oblique sublimation nuclei, and water droplets and water droplets with the objective with the objective to induce more precipitation with the objective to induce more precipitation so further right it is believed by some scientists it is believed by some scientists that solid carbon dioxide pellets, it is believed by some scientists that solid carbon dioxide pellets, <coughs> P-E-L-L-E-T-S, within graduate, also called dry ice, also called dry ice, close the bracket, and silver iodide smoke, and silver iodide smoke, can enhance, can enhance cloud growth and hence increase precipitation and hence increase precipitation and hence increase precipitation the right the last sentence but the results of cloud seeding are not predictable or reliable but the results of cloud seeding are not predictable or reliable. Now, before I leave this, there is one small observation. See here. I said in uh, European projects, all the three results came. In a few, we had positive results. So there is nothing much to explain because we did something and we got some results out of it. In many of them, we had no results. We wasted time and money. But there is third third result. What is that? We got less than what we were getting otherwise. So someone of you may have a question that sir, how come we have negative results despite all these injections? 
then the answer we have understood with time is this that when you inject too many particles for condensation or sublimation, the given amount of moisture of the atmosphere will get distributed over more number of particles and the condensation particles which will get formed, they will be too small in size. And you learned in the beginning of the lecture today that cloud particles, if they are too small in size, they do not precipitate. So, it means too much of injection of particles is also not good because the given amount of moisture will get shared with too many particles and the condensation and sublimation which will be there that will give very small droplets of water or ice crystals and being very small, though they may be great in number, they will not come to us. And this point is also useful. Means you must know that if the particles are too small in size, that can create some other problems also. I'll just give in, but that's not related to cloud setting. There was a question four or five years back on urban flooding that where you had to answer why urban floods have become so <coughs> frequent in India. In fact, today we understand we have created such conditions in the big cities of India that just one heavy rain is what we need for a disaster. The, reason are, the reasons are many. One of the points which are related to today's lecture is this here. In many big cities like Delhi <coughs> and other, like Kanpur, etc., also, you have reasons for a lot of pollutants. So, if you have more pollutants in the atmosphere, can I say it is like having abundance of condensation nuclei? Yes, it? So, what we have understood over the years is this that more pollutants in the atmosphere become more the reason for cloud formation. But generally, we expect more pollutants lead to more cloud and more precipitation. Yes or no? That the moment cloud is formed, we'll expect it will start giving us rain. But we Indians understood that with more pollution in a city like Delhi or Kanpur, we had more cloud formation. But most of these clouds didn't give us precipitation. They just kept on growing because particles were too small in size. Aerosols or whatever uh, pollution particles are there, they kept on making condensation, means cloud. And cloud kept growing in size. And finally, the cloud was too big in size and finally there came a time when it got a trigger and it happened to give you too much of rain in too short a time. Remember, a city like Delhi can handle small rain every day, yes or no? Mm -hmm. But what is the problem with the big cities of the country today? That we can't handle big rain on one day. Mm -hmm. So, we earlier thought more pollution will give us more clouds and that will give us more rainy days. But that never happened. It gave us more and more of cloud growth and finally it used to burst on one particular day and that leads to urban flood. Because I am not saying this is the only reason. There are other reasons also have seen in Chennai that we in India have all, in all cities of India we, just, we have destroyed wetlands. In your college classes you have seen each wetland acts as a sponge. It can absorb a lot of water. <coughs> like lakes etc. have always been a solution to floods. If you see there are many towns in India where our ancient rulers were so wise that they made a network of artificial and natural lakes and that too in some towns at different contour levels. 
because there are many cows in India where you have network of natural and artificial lakes and that to a different elevation. It means that there is heavy rain in the higher elevation. One particular lake will absorb water. Whatever is left, it will come with that. Even that will absorb and will keep on going. So there are two things. Finally, it will control flood. And second, each reservoir is fit for water to be used in the lean period. So there can be nothing better than that. And whereas after independence, when we Indians went for urban planning, we treated these wetlands as wastelands. And we removed them for commercial reasons. So one important reason for floods in Chennai was that we do, do not have wetlands. Then look at the drainage system. That we have changed the kacha roads with pakka roads, and we have changed the drainage and the percolating kind of process as well. Or all drainage channels are mostly blocked. So all these kind of reasons get together, make every city of India today a case for any type of urban flood. We just need one heavy rain. So pollution makes big clouds but doesn't give you rain every day. It makes a big cloud and then finally it gets a trigger for something. So all this learning will be useful in those answers also. Now, write the next chapter. Yes, someone will do Last part is Charge means whatever interference. But in the conventional cloud setting projects, we are not doing that. In Chinese, that's certain other objectives also. Many, many times, it is misunderstood in the case of China. They didn't want to have the presentation. They wanted to disperse the cloud. Okay. So yes, basically, cloud setting, which is seen in conventional sense, is based on second hypothesis. Remember, the charged particle scenario is not really that easy. Okay. So as a rule, I'll say cloud setting projects have been based on not the first hypothesis, it is based on second hypothesis. And it is what I have to do. Now, write the titled types of presentation. Mechanism with which air gets uplifted to result in condensation precipitation. The mechanism with which the air gets uplifted to result in condensation precipitation is called type of precipitation. Is called type of precipitation. The right. There are three major types of precipitation <coughs> as described below. There are three major types of precipitation as described below. Now write the first one.
conventional preservation. And give me five minutes on the board. First, we'll confirm the points, and then I'll make the right. So be on the board and don't write. See ya. <coughs> First point to write would be that this presentation is because of unequal heating of two areas. So the area which is heated more, air would become warmer and warmer air would rise. Second, my point would be that convection precipitation has three major limitations. It is restricted in terms of latitude. By this I mean it is more a feature of tropical beds. Second, it is restricted in terms of season of the year. It is worldwide a feature of summer season. And third, it also gets restricted in terms of time of the day. For this presentation, you need the presence of sun. When sun has to leave that area, so there are three restrictions, latitude, season, and time. Now, this is what you have already done. Now, I add one new point. See here. Convection presentation is usually torrential in nature or what I call as showery or showery in nature. What do I mean by torrential? I mean that drop size is larger. Is if I compare convection presentation with orographic, generally I'll find the drops of water are larger. And second, the given amount of water comes to me in a shorter period, means the precipitation is more intense. So I repeat, we have a torrential or showery precipitation when it is convection with larger drops of water and the time taken for the water to come to me is shorter. It means it is a fast and furious kind of precipitation in comparison to orographic one. Now please tell me, based on your previous lecture and today's lecture, can you reason out in mind why this presentation has larger drops and why does it come to me faster? <coughs> Also, I have mentioned this point twice or thrice. See here, convection presentation will give you more kind of cloud. Convection method will give you vertically more to another cloud. Yes, Now, if a cloud is vertically more to another, don't think each drop would have a long journey. Because journey is long, collisions are more, and collisions would be more. And when the cloud is dwelling vertically, the intensity of the presentation would automatically increase. So it's going to be what we call as torrential or showering. It's fast and its intensity is more. Those who don't understand this, I can do it the other way around also. I can show you orographic presentation generally would be gentler would be prolonged, means for the same water, nature will take more time to uh, uh, to make it fall on the ground. And third, it would be more widespread. Now, you have, when you go to mountains, you will have seen that it keeps raining for a number of hours, yes? More prolonged. And drop size may not be large, generally it is smaller. Exceptions can be there. So, what is the reason that the presentation of the mountains will be Gentler, long, and widespread. 
Let's understand this way. Imagine moisture level here is coming from this side, and there are hills here making the mountains visible. And you know, the mountains will not make a continuous wall of one height. It's a random distribution of it, of different elevations. And so when the air comes from one side, the air will be forced to rise. But don't you think, at places where mountain is not present, and the elevations where it is missing, what's going to happen? Air will also have the freedom to spread. Then again it will rise, again spread. See, what kind of cloud? Cloud which is more horizontally developed and less vertically developed. So, if it is more white, uh, uh, like horizontally spread, this will give us what, what kind of presentation? White spread. If vertical growth is less, the chances of the, uh, the drop size would be smaller because pollution is less. So, in general, we will be writing the notes today. Orographic presentation is gentler, drops are smaller, white spread. Long, whereas here it is more showery, it's brief in time, but it gives you larger, larger drops and that too is So if you are in Singapore, you'll have torrential precipitation being near equator, and if you are in mountains, you'll have something. But remember, exceptions can always be there. For example, when you are, uh, Mr. Shiv will cover uh, monsoon rain in Khasi Hills, where you have places like Charapunji and Monsoon, you might get. The mountains giving you very intense rain. You know these are the places known to be the wettest places most of the time. So reason is that on the southern slopes of Khasi Hills, the mountain hills are so placed that it makes a funnel-shaped topography. So when moisture and air reaches there, it gets trapped there only. And the same air is being forced to rise to great height. It means it's an exception, but otherwise in general, it will be more widespread kind of cloud formation and less vertical hmm. So please write first convectional presentation. Write it in small words, number one. It is due to unequal heating law. It is due to unequal heating law, different surface areas. It is due to unequal heating of surface areas. <coughs> then right. This precipitation is restricted in terms of latitudes. It is restricted in terms of latitudes. Put a comma season and the time of the day and time of the day. The right next one. This precipitation is showery or shory, S H O W R Y, or oblique to like torrential. This precipitation is torrential or shory with large raindrops, with large raindrops falling fast and furiously, falling fast and furiously. But, but, for only a short duration, but for only a short duration. <coughs> now you write orographic presentation.
Now please here. One we have already been told that orographic respiration will be gentler, widespread and prolonged. But let me the other point before you write. You already know from my previous lecture there can be two sides of the mountain for orographic respiration. One is the windward side, the other is the leeward side. So if I take the case of Western Ghats in India, now look at the diagram. Summer season of India. That you will see in the monsoon topic. Southwest monsoon winds from June to September will find the western side of western guards of India to be the windward side. And on the windward side, the air would rise, will get antibiotically cooled, holding capacity will decrease, and as a result, RH will increase. Remember RH? And there would be cloud formation and heavy precipitation. And you know, this area is one of the ecological hotspots of India. Now, if, when the air would go on the other side, one, it has already shed its moisture. Second, it goes for descending motion and gets antibiotically warm. Holding capacity keeps increasing. RS keeps decreasing. And this area would be a rain shadow zone. So you will see in Indian geography, this area of India being in the rain shadow zone is deficient in terms of the water availability for irrigation and industrial activities. So leeward side you have rain shadow zone. On the windward side you have great rain. Now, can I say orographic presentation is a beauty in one sense that it has no restriction of latitude or season or time. For this presentation to take place, you just need two things. You need a parcel of air in moisture plus you need a barrier. It means this presentation can happen anywhere in the world, any time of the year, as well as any time of the day. So please write all this. So under orographic first point, it is due to a topographic barrier. It is due to a topographic barrier. Second point, on the windward side, on the windward side, put a comma, as the air rises, on the windward side, comma, as the air rises, again a comma, it cools adiabatically. It cools adiabatically, resulting in condensation precipitation. Resulting in condensation and precipitation. <coughs> Next point. On the leeward side, at double E W A R D, on the leeward side, put a comma, as the air descends. As the air descends, again put a comma, it warms adiabatically, it warms adiabatically, and its RH decreases, relative humidity decreases, and its relative humidity de decreases, resulting in rain shadow zone, resulting in rain shadow zone. Next one. It is more likely to be gentler. It is more likely to be gentler, widespread and prolonged. It is more likely to be gentler, widespread and prolonged. Next one. 
it can occur at any latitude. It can occur at any latitude. Put a any season. Any season. <coughs> and any time of the day. At any time of the day. If there is a barrier. If there is a barrier and moist air is forced to rise, and the moist air is forced to rise, now write the third one, frontal sensitivity. Now if you remember from my second lecture onward, I have been talking about different organism, Nasiya. <coughs> In the temperate areas you have seen, there is a temperate low pressure belt. And it becomes the zone of convergence of two contrasting masses of air. One, the polar air mass, and the second is tropical air mass. Polar air mass is cold and dry, and tropical air mass is warm and moist. And then this we learn that when two contrasting air masses meet in middle latitude, they do not merge into each other, they don't mix, and there is a zone of transition formed, and that zone of transition is called as a front. The name was given to this phenomenon as front because the European scientists were studying this. This was the time of the World War. So they took the analogy from the war front, where the two forces may stand yes to this, but may not shake hands. So, a front is a zone of transition. And then we learned in the previous classes that in a front, sooner or the later, warm air would rise. And that's what we are looking for for the process of condensation. Now, can I say in my notes that frontal precipitation would also be restricted in terms of latitude? Because fronts very often only form in middle latitude. Yes, if the question comes in exam, then do we get frontal precipitation in India? Yes. Answer is yes. But still we'll say fronts don't happen to form it. You have been told in my one lecture that temperate cyclones come to India, and especially in the winter season, and we call them as western disturbances. And those cyclones are frontal systems. So fronts do come to us, but they don't form here. So we may get frontal precipitation, especially in winter in Delhi or northwest India like Punjab, Haryana, sorry, Punjab and say Jammu and Kashmir, Himachal Pradesh. But the front's formation is not there. So it is a, basically a feature of middle latitude. So write a few points and then there is one more point after happening. Right? A front is a zone of transition. A front is a zone of transition formed in the middle latitudes, formed in the middle latitudes, between the two contrasting air masses, between the two contrasting air masses, could it happen? The cold, dry, polar air mass, the cold, dry, polar air mass 
and the warm moist tropical air mass and the warm moist tropical air mass the right brother in a front warm air rises over the cold air in a front warm air rises over the cold air resulting in condensation precipitation resulting in condensation and precipitation next one frontal precipitation is especially a feature of middle latitude <coughs> it is especially a feature of middle latitude what's up there it is less significant it is less significant in the higher latitude and rare in the tropics and less significant in the higher latitude and rare in the tropics because these regions contain because these regions contain air masses these regions contain air masses that tend to be like one another that tend to be like one another now we are going to go for the last point see here <coughs> in the case of convection precipitation we say it's going to be torrential rain whereas in the case of orographic rain gentler wide spread prolonged etc so similarly you may have a question in mind that what would be the features of frontal precipitation the answer to that question will be that the features of frontal precipitation depend upon just in a given situation what is the type of rain form so it means in nature we have different types of rain and that type will decide what are the features of precipitation now generally we believe that typology of rain is not a part of gs level means we teach it at higher level in optical classes but then we need to know what are the features of frontal precipitation so i'll give you typology in the easiest possible fashion so that you will understand the features of the frontal precipitation now see here in nature we have two major types of front warm front and second is cold front and what is the easiest way to understand this picture see when two air masses meet in the middle latitude atmospheric situation will decide which air mass is aggressor air mass so the rule of the game is that if in a front warm air mass is aggressive then it is called warm front and if it is cold air mass which is aggressive then it is called cold front now you may have a question what does aggression mean here aggression means the warm or the cold whatever it is aggressor that has more energy with it means air is moving at a great speed with more intensity so that is what we call as aggression and you know speed of the air and such other things are dependent on atmospheric situation for example pga will decide that at what speed the air is moving so 
If bomb air is aggressive, it's bomb front. If cold air is aggressive, it is cold front. And the typology will decide what are the features. So right, I'll show you design. The features of frontal precipitation, <coughs> features of frontal precipitation, depend upon the type of front formed. The type of front formed. Right? Next minute. There are two major types of fronts in nature. There are two major types of fronts in nature. Warm front and cold front. Warm front and cold front. <coughs> now let's go for one by one go. Now you write first cold front. Write cold front. Let's have the order coded. Now we only go to a desert and I'll make right here. When two air masses meet, and if the atmospheric situation makes the cold air mass aggressive, now what happens is. Cold air mass is coming at a great speed. It cuts off the warm air from the ground. Remember, cold air is denser, stays low to the ground, and warm air is lighter. It don't rise in comparison. So imagine, two big air masses are coming close, and the cold air mass is aggressive. It cuts off the warm air from the ground and forcibly lifts this warm air to great heights in a narrow zone. Now tell me, how many of you understand that I sound like convection presentation? Yes. When air rises in a narrow zone to great heights, you have what kind of results? So it means my notes will say, in a cold front, cold air mass which is aggressive, cuts off the warm air from the ground and vigorously, forcibly lifts the warm air to great heights, giving us the presentation which is more or less similar to convection. Right this one. <coughs> a cold front is one in which cold air mass is aggressive or you can make is aggressive. Cold air mass is aggressive. In this front, in this front, cold air cuts off cuts off OWF. Cold air cuts off the warm air from the ground. Warm air from the ground and forcibly lifts it up and forcibly lifts it up to great heights. Resulting in precipitation, resulting in precipitation, <coughs> which is more or less similar to, which is more or less similar to convectional precipitation, <coughs> which, are more or, uh, which is more or less similar to convectional precipitation. Now we write the title warm front. And here the board for two minutes. See here. 
air masses come together, but now the atmospheric situation is the warm air masses aggressive. But do remember one point, whoever may be the aggressor, it is the warm air which has to lose the ground finally, yes or no? Warm air is lighter, it has to go up. But in one front, the situation is different, now the boss is warm air. Yes or no? So see here, imagine the air masses come together, now warm air is aggressor, but the warm air being lighter, it has to leave the ground. But since it is dominant, it is the aggressor, so warm air would rise of its own. It is not being forced to rise by someone else. Either. So imagine my two hands are warm air, so warm air is rising. But it would rise gradually now. And it would rise as if it is trying to tell the cold air, I'm going up not because of it. I'm going up because it's in my nature to go up. So it will does it inside. Is it right? Am I sounding more similar to that air would rise gradually, but it will take its time and keep spreading wherever possible. And you'll have a cloud which is more horizontally spread and less vertically spread. So, besides, in a warm front, warm air mass is aggressive. In a warm front, Warm air mass is aggressive. So in this front, in this front, warm air rises gradually. Warm air rises gradually. And as it rises, it also spreads horizontally. It also spreads horizontally. Resulting in precipitation. Resulting in precipitation. Which is more or less similar to. Orographic type. which is more or less similar to orographic type. Now, two minutes more on the book. Now, please see here. There are two major types of friends I have said them, warm and cold. But there may be some student who is going to tell me something outside, so for those kind of students, I am taking up these two minutes extra. See here. We do have, <coughs> we do have two more types of friends, but they are not relevant to our, our discussion. What are those types? Let me tell you. But you know that because they are not needed here. There is a friend we teach at higher level in option <coughs> that is called stationary friend. But this is useless in our discussion. What is stationary friend? Here, when two air masses meet, but they do not interact in any way. It's something like when two people meet and don't interact for <coughs> some time, what will happen? Nothing will happen. After some time, they will decide. To go away. So it's something like imagine. And I mean it Two air masses come together. A friend is born. But no activity. No one is rising, no one is forcing the other to rise. Right? So the system dissipates. The system gets over. So 
I hope you understand. Especially from the very name suggests, it is not going to decide our weather conditions. Remember, every front is a reason to decide weather conditions. So stationary means that just got formed, but no activity is happening. So it gets over. So it's not important because I have to create rain and rain will not happen till the time here. Right. Either of it goes or it goes just up. So for that reason, I'm just not discussing it. Fourth time, but no need to write again. Now, this front, we will discuss in your class when your other teacher, Mr. Amish, will take cyclones topic. If it teaches you temperate cyclone, in the formation of temperate cyclone, we have a concept of occluded. Now, let me tell you before he teaches you this, but no need to write for today's lecture. Here, in terms of occlusion, means air getting cut off from the ground. Remember I said a few minutes back, cold air cuts off, cuts off the warm air from the ground. So cutting off of the air from the ground is called as occlusion. Now, when a temperate cyclone is formed, we have two fronts involved. Mind it now. I'll just take two minutes more. When two air masses come, we have a front. Yes or no? In the case of a temperate cyclone, when you do the topic, there will be two fronts involved. Warm front and cold front. And as a fact of nature, cold fronts move faster. So imagine, there is a warm front moving in this direction. And there comes another front, which is cold front, from behind. Like two cars on the highway. Now let's visualize. Front means a transition zone. So let's say this is warm front. Warm front means transition between two air masses. So this left hand is a warm front moving in this direction. This is warm air on this side. And this is cold air near the ground. And this is warm air. The transition zone is front. Which front I said? Warm. Warm air, cold air. Now comes a front from behind. This is a cold front. <coughs> This is generally more steeper. Now, what is this air? Warm air. And this is cold air. So see, both are moving in the same direction. And this front moves faster. Because you know, cold air is aggressive. It's going to take warm air along with it and keep making it go off. So, when cold front is coming from behind, it's like two cars on the highway. And this cold front is trying to catch with warm front. So don't think they will come at time. When the warm air of the warm front and the warm air of the cold front, they will mix. Yes, sir? And this would be called as warm sector. So warm air of the warm front and warm air of the cold front will join together. And it will make a warm sector. And can I say there will come a time after some moments when the cold air of the cold front will also meet the cold air of the warm front. And when the cold air of the cold front and the cold air of the warm front would be, can I say, can I say, can I say, the warm sector will get cut off? Yes. Yes, That moment would be a front called occluded front. And then there are life stages of this to give us a temperate cycle. Okay. Now, you might get it in reference of that particular class of cycle. Now you write the
क्या कौन सा यही बात है मैं तो मेरा तो फ्रूट ही तो है वो ऊपर पहुंचा है खुश है नलाय अब जीवन स्वीकार किया